It's time once again for another episode of Planning Successfully. Brought to you by the law firm of Davis, Matthews, and Quigley. Planning Successfully is for general information purposes only. And no information discussed during the show is to be considered either legal advice or legal opinion. Broadcasting live from the Pro Business Channel studios in Atlanta. And now here's your host for today's episode, Matthew Theory. Welcome and thank you for joining us for this episode of Planning Successfully. I'm your host, Matt Theory. I'm joined in studio again today by my colleague, Rhett Peden. Rhett and I uh, have been on several shows together recently, uh, and I'm happy to welcome back uh, Rhett for this episode as well. Rhett and I are both shareholders at the law firm of Davis Matthews and Quigley, and uh, we frequently work together on business issues. I'm going to my, pro, my practice focuses primarily on business law, uh, such as outside general counsel services for uh, businesses, and business litigation, fiduciary litigation, as well as providing mediation and arbitration services. Um, Rhett, would you like to take a quick moment and introduce your practice as well? Thanks, Matt. Uh, yeah, my practice focuses on helping uh, closely held businesses and professional practices and their owners uh, exit their businesses, whether that means... Uh, they're selling the business or passing it to the next generation, family, or of, of employees. Uh, that's what I focus on, but also uh, my practice encompasses general corporate tax planning and estate planning work as well. Thanks, Rhett. You can learn more about Rhett, you can learn more about me, and you can learn more about the other lawyers at Davis, Matthews, and Quigley by visiting our website, which is www.dmqlaw.com. Today we're going to talk about a variety of different restrictive agreements and the issues and um, other types of agreements that surround those. Uh, restrictive agreements and related agreements, sort of the uh, common applications of those agreements, the types of folks that might be subjected to those agreements, and th those types of issues are going to be the focus of the conversation. Um, with a lot of areas of the law that we've discussed on this show and a lot that we haven't, you know, a lot of these issues are... Um, governed by state law that's different from state to state. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about these in sort of the general context. And uh, in a couple instances, Rhett and I will talk a little bit about some of the state-specific law here in Georgia that applies. Um, for example, uh, when we talk about restrictive covenants in the employment agreement context, uh, there was a ge general shift in law in May of 2011 here in Georgia, and uh, that dramatically changed how Georgia law applies to covenants that are put into employment agreements. So, um, Rhett, if you would like, uh, talk, talk to us a little bit about that change. Well, uh, generally the law became much more favorable for employers after 2011 and, and really took Georgia in the direction of states that are going uh, towards that. Uh, before that, uh, it was much harder uh, to uh, support a restrictive covenant and, and have it be enforceable, uh, and that, that's all changed. Now, uh, you mentioned it was only a few years ago, and, and it takes a while for these cases to percolate through the system and, and see how is the new law going to be interpreted differently from the old law. And we haven't fully gotten the contours of that in Georgia yet, uh, but we do, we do think that it's going to make it a lot easier for companies and for the attorneys who draft for companies uh, to get enforceable agreements. And, and one, of the, one of the big differences, uh, Matt, between uh, now and, and, and before the, the change in the law, which was actually affected by a constitutional amendment, I think it's important to, to mention, uh, is the people actually voted on it, That's right. uh, and uh, is that now judges have a lot more flexibility to interpret these covenants and to, uh, to pencil in, or it's called blue pencil, 
the uh, the covenants. That means that uh, they can the judge can take something that may not be airtight, and they can put in what they think are the reasonable terms uh, to interpret the covenant uh, and to give it some shape. Whereas before, if the covenant was not drafted in such a way that it was easily understandable, uh, the entire covenant would fall apart. Now judges can kind of uh, read between the lines and put their own interpretation into the covenants and make them enforceable, whereas before the whole covenant would fall apart if you were missing some element of it. Right, and a lot of the analysis that went into the uh, judges looking at these covenants in the past was, you know, is is the covenant reasonable? You know, is there mm-hmm. is there a level of reasonableness within this? And that and that varied. Um, from agreement to agreement, what the employer thought was a reasonable restriction versus what the employee thought was a re- reasonable restriction led to a lot of litigation. And, um, you know, one of the Georgia Supreme Court justices once wrote in a dissenting opinion that under the old law, 10 Philadelphia lawyers could not draft an employer-employee restrictive covenant agreement that would pass muster under the recent rulings of this court. Now, I'm not exactly sure why Philadelphia lawyers were singled out in this particular instance, but the point is that under the old law, it, if you weren't very, very narrow in your drafting, you were very, very much at risk of losing your covenants altogether. Um, well, I think that's a that's a great point, uh, and that may be one of the reasons, just conjecturing, that we haven't seen uh, the litigation fully develop under the new law, which is under the old law, the fact that a covenant was so easy to challenge, it made it uh, very uh, incentivized for people to challenge those covenants and to take it to court and you know roll the dice, see if you might win the case and, and get released from the covenant. Uh, the new law has had a chilling effect on that. We've seen it in our own practice when we talk to people and say, you know, is it is it worthwhile for you to challenge this or do you want to come to a, a different accommodation? Because uh, just the, the way that the new statute is and the, and the new provision in the Constitution, it makes it, uh, it makes it that much harder for someone to take a chance and challenge that covenant. And, and, and to that point, I think, you know, to, to kind of flesh that out a little bit, the, under the old law, if, if the covenant were found unreasonable, the covenant went away. Mm-hmm. The, the employee was free to, to do whatever was prohibited by that covenant. Under the new law, with the modification allowance that's provided by the statute, um, you know, even if the employee is successful in finding having the court find that the covenant is unreasonable, the court will, will most likely thereafter modify that agreement and place a restriction on the employee that the court believes is reasonable. Therefore, the employee is not fully released. There's still a restriction. So the the incentive for the employee is significantly different than it was under the old law. That's right. And 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 you know, when I'm advising employers, which is usually where I, I I'll get pulled into this and we're drafting uh, restrictive covenants, uh, it, it, it certainly is an incentive for the employer to try to maybe even overreach a little bit. And an example of that and, and what we're talking about is that uh, we may have a company that has a lot of different operations uh, across the country. They may, they may sell in a lot of different states. You may be located here in Georgia. Most of your business may be in Georgia, but you may have made a few sales in Florida, Alabama, Alaska. So when you're drafting a covenant, uh, if you're the employer, you may just say, look, you can't compete anywhere in the United States of America. And before, uh, you know, before 2011, if you had said uh, you can't compete anywhere in the United States of America, a judge would come in and say, well, that's that's unreasonable. 
uh, you don't do business across the whole United States. You only do business in Georgia. Since that's an unreasonable element of your covenant, the entire restrictive covenant's going away, and the employee's free to, to do whatever they want to do to compete. Yeah. Now, a judge will come in and say, well, the entire United States may be unreasonable, but you do a lot of business in Georgia, you do some in Florida, Alabama, we're going to scale it back. Right. So, yeah, the employee is free to compete, but he has to move to you know Illinois uh, to do it. And so the covenant as a whole still stands. And that's that's the big difference, and, and that's where the incentives come in before and after the, the change in the law. Yeah, and under the old law, I had a case, for example, where an employee was restricted from competing in what was generally considered the metro Atlanta counties. They listed them out, um, maybe 15 counties in the metro area. However, the employee only had previously actually worked for the company in about five of those counties. And the court struck the restrictive covenant because it was unreasonably broad because it restricted the employee from competing in areas where the employee did not previously work for the employer. So very much to your point, now under the new law, the court would have the option of striking the the counties that the employee didn't previously work in and limiting only to where the employee actually worked. Therefore, the restriction would still exist just only limited into what would actually be reasonable. Right. So that's that's an example of state law specific type of issues. I want to talk in, in some more generalities about some of these other agreements. Uh, you know, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, non-competes and non-solicitation agreements specifically. Uh, those are often paired with non-disclosure agreements, so I think we'd like to talk about those as well. Um, in addition to the non-disclosure, I'd like to talk a little bit about non-circumvention agreements uh, trade secret protection. Trade secret protection, again, kind of skirts the line with the non-disclosure agreement, but there's some additional material with respect to that. And then um, agreements with respect to assignment of inventions and work product. I think those are all sort of things that you would see typically in uh, a lot of these agreements where people are trying to protect their business from, from being taken away and moved next door. And I think that's generally the, po- the overall purpose of most of these agreements is to protect the ongoing concern of a business so that they can continue to operate without interruption. If an employee, a contractor, a joint venture, or an owner, one of these folks decides to leave the business. Yeah, I think, I think there are really two contexts that we typically see these restrictive covenants come up. Uh, one is in the employment context, whether you're the employer or the employee, and ongoing business operations protecting those and the litigation that, that can arise in, the, in that context. The second context is when you're buying and selling your company, and we, we've hit upon that in a couple of our previous episodes where it's, it's really good to have those agreements locked up ahead of time because it can increase the value of your company and make you a lot more attractive to a buyer if you've protected all your intellectual property, if you've locked up all your key employees. And it's, it's so important to get that done ahead of time, whether you're talking about the employment context or buying and selling a company. I mean, there's a, a recent example that I know that, that it's, it's very typical that we've come across, which is even in the employment context, if your employee leaves and you want to tie them up under a covenant, you're going to have to come out of pocket with a lot of money to incentivize them to sign up to those covenants if they haven't before, because otherwise they're going to look and see, well, what is the value you're paying me to not compete with you versus what can I go out there on the market and command for my services uh, and and the employee may well say, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and compete with you. And we have seen situations where uh, they've been able, the employee's been able to leave the company, not be under a, uh, a a restrictive covenant, and basically clean the clock of their former employer because sure. it was a, such a valuable employee who left. And had they been tied up under a restrictive covenant, 
they wouldn't have been able to do that. And employees are much more likely to sign those covenant agreements earlier in the employment arrangement where they want the job and they want to continue with the employment as opposed to at the time that they're leaving the job where that relationship's ending regardless of whether or not they enter into those covenants. That's right. And it's, it's sometimes it's only when someone leaves that an employer has that aha moment and thinks, I should have done this. Uh, so again, day one is the best time to do it. Today is the next best time to do it. The worst time is when they actually leave. Right. So let's talk in, in just overview first, and then we'll talk about some of the specific applications of these agreements. But let's talk about the different types of agreements. So a non-compete, for example. A non-compete is where you're trying to prevent someone from going out and actually doing the competitive business that it competes with the services or products that the company provides for a period of time. Now, there's a, there are restrictions uh, how you look at this is reasonable. Obviously, the, the duration of the restriction, the territory of the restriction, and then the scope of the restriction. But the, but the general overall theme is we want to make sure that the employee, contractor, owner, whomever it is, doesn't st- decide one day I'm done with company A, I'm going to company B, and I'm going to do the same thing in direct competition with that company. Or, or open up their own new company. Correct. That's right. And, you know, when I talk to, to my clients a lot, uh, what I what I see is that people aren't necessarily interested all the time in non competes. What they're actually after is a non solicit, yeah. and this is very important, especially for uh, professionals and salespeople. Uh, is that if you sign up for a non compete, you're really limiting your ability to earn a living. You could be, uh, and employers don't always want to do that to their employees. They they want to be reasonable. What you're actually after in most cases, I've found, is a non-solicit. And a non-solicit, particularly a a non-solicitation of of clients and prospective clients, is where the employee agrees that they're not going to call upon the customers that their employer has. So if they've developed a route, uh, they can't call on the people in that route. If they've got certain customers they call upon, if they've been made aware of, of confidential customer list, for example, that, that, that their employer has, they're not going to use that to compete against their former employer. What they can do, though, is to go out there, use their industry knowledge and contacts, other than the clients, to build up a new base of customers and go out there and compete. And typically, the employer is going to feel protected uh, as long as their own clients aren't being poached right. uh, by their former employee. And that's that's kind of a reasonable accommodation between not having any restrictive covenant in place and having some sort of airtight non-compete that may really be unfair to the employee. And, and a lot of times in the previous context, so we were talking about the law prior to 2011, an employer would decide to just completely forego the non-compete agreement because it was so much more difficult to make reasonable than would be to make a non-solicit, uh, a reasonable non-solicitation mm-hmm. provision. So the, you're right. The protection that a lot of employers are really looking for is I don't want this cu- this person to leave and then take away my clients with them. If they go and start a competitive business and we're all out there trying to get this new customer that we've never dealt with before and we're running into them, fine. But I don't want to see them knocking on the door of the people that they were working with on my on my watch. And and, and another part of the non-solicit is uh, when you see a non-solicit of customers, uh, a lot of times you're also going to see a non-solicitation of employees, uh, which goes along with that. It, it's not telling someone they can't go out there and compete. But what it is telling them is that you don't want them poaching their coworkers. So if someone wants to leave the company and go somewhere else and work and compete, that's fine. But don't take your whole team with you. Right. Uh, and so, again, there's some drafting around that that can go on to 
what does it mean to recruit some of your former colleagues and 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 what behavior would would fall afoul of the of the covenant but the basic idea is uh leave if you're going to leave but don't take the whole team with you right and and so that's kind of the general overview of the non-compete and the non-solicitation agreements let's talk for a second about non-disclosure agreements and i think that a lot of times you know you get into this this issue with you know folks are working for the business or provided access to information that the employer wouldn't want to have out in the general public domain and you know whether that be a client list whether that be pricing information there are an entire realm of different things that that an employer may seem deem excuse me to be confidential and they want to protect that so a lot of times when they deal with these uh issues with an employee, they, they provide the information to the employee so long as the employee has signed off, that they won't disclose that to any third party, won't use it for any purposes other than the business purposes, and to the extent that they have any of that information, they'll return it at the end of their employment. Where it gets a little tricky, uh, was especially with some of our engineering and uh, tech clients, uh, it, it's always a question between what is general industry knowledge uh, things that people have picked up, just tools of the trade, versus what are specific uh, uh, issues of IP or technical knowledge that are specific to the company that are trade secrets or that or that are protected under the the umbrella of confidential information, and that's always a very uh, hard gray area to define that we'll get into with a lot of these employment contracts, or if you have vendor agreements where you're out there hiring uh, an independent contractor who's a tech company or an engineering services firm, and, and to say, well, if we're doing work for you, for the, for the end client, what part of that work becomes the specific property of the end client, and what part of that is just our general knowledge that we could re- repurpose and retool and take on to our next engagement. So especially in the IT area and in the engineering and professional services area, it's, it's always a, uh, a battle, and it's never really clearly demarcated uh, what's going to be protected confidential information and, and what's not. Correct. Correct. And we talked for a second there when we were talking about confidential information, a little bit about trade secrets. And, uh, you know, as, as you both, we both know anyway, that trade secrets have a certain amount of protection, whether or not a non-disclosure agreement is entered into or not. Um, trade secrets are more than just general confidential information. They're, they're sort of the, the secret sauce of the business, so to speak, you know, the formula for Coca-Cola or something along those lines that, you know, without that particular information, this business would be very much devalued. And there, there you have the, the certain protections without an NDA, but you also have certain obligations as a, as a company to protect that information and take reasonable steps to protect that information. And, you know, what, what does that mean? That means, you know, only people that have a need to know kind of basis have access to that information. You know, everybody in the company doesn't have access to the trade secrets of the company because everybody wouldn't need it. Um, you would protect that information on your computers so that, you know, not everybody could just log into the system and pull up this information. You know, they have certain credentials and, a- and access privileges to get to this information. So you it, usually when a trade secret gets exposed or you get into a fight as to whether or not something's a trade secret, and then you start looking into what steps did the employer take to protect this information, to r- take it beyond just the confidential information level and make it into a trade secret. And and, and by trade secret, it, there's there are statutes on the books that automatically protect that information. Confidential information is something, uh, it can be trade secrets which are statutorily protected, but it's broader than that in concept. So when you talk about confidential information, 
that's something that an employer and an employee have contractually agreed between them that they're going to respect. But a trade secret, it goes beyond that. That's something that's uh, super special, confidential information that statutes protect for companies as, as part of their protected property. But what you're saying, Matt, is that if a company doesn't treat something like a trade secret, it could lose its protection as a trade secret. So there are some affirmative obligations that you've got to take in order to get the, the statutory protection, reasonable steps to protect the information. And, and usually, if you're the business owner, you'd want to take those steps anyway so that it's to protect that information from getting into the hands of people that you wouldn't want to have access to it. I mean, you and I wouldn't want the formula, if we were the owners of Coca-Cola, we wouldn't want that formula out there floating around amongst everyone in the company. That's, that's right. certainly not something we would be wanting to do that anyway, but in order to maintain that protection, we would have to do it. Or if I'm, if I'm an IT company and I've got some special information, but I'm installing it uh, for some third-party applications and uh, it's open for the third party to, to dissect, that's not something that's protected as a trade secret. That's something that you need to go beyond and independently establish in your contract who's going to have ownership of that property and who can use it and who has a license to use it. You, you've got to really contractually define that because it's not just protected by the fact that you think it's valuable. And, and, and so that, that kind of dovetails nicely into the next agreement that we wanted to discuss, and that's sort of the assignment of inventions and work product. And you get that on an employee level. You get that on a relationship with your customer level in, in, in the IT context, for example. But usually, if you're an employee and you're asked to sign this agreement, the employer is asking you to say, if I develop something while I'm employed here, if I develop some IP, if I develop some code, if I develop any information that would be valuable to the business or to be used in the business, that that information doesn't belong to me as an individual, as an employee. It belongs to the company, and that was a part of the services that I was providing to the company. It's to protect that information from walking out the door. I think that's the uh, basis of the story on the Silicon Valley show on HBO where the uh, the guy goes and takes Pied Piper, and, and there was the uh, whether he developed it on the uh, former company's Hulu's uh, computer system or not. So I think a lot of people in our listening uh, audience may uh, relate to that. But sure. that's, a, that's the same idea. And you, get in, and you also get into that same context where you have uh, an independent contractor that's providing services, uh, particularly like you, we talked about the IT world a lot today. Uh, particularly the IT world, if you have a coder, for example, that's working on a project with you and you have the relationship with the client, at the end of that project, who owns that code? Um, you know, and that and that's oftentimes defined by the contract. And if it's not defined by the contract, then you typically have a fight. Um, you know, the the usually the customer, the end customer, wants to own the end product, um, and whether that's compiled or open source is another issue. But they they want to own the end product, and obviously the creative, the person that that prepared the coding of it, wants to be able to take that same code and, and adapt it to other uses. So they don't want to give up the ownership of that. So there's a lot of pushback back and forth between the parties in that context as to who owns what as far as the, as the products go. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one other agreement that I'd like to talk about for a moment is a non-circumvention agreement. And I, you see this a lot in the context of um, third-party independent contractors that, that a client might work with, or you see this in the context of a joint venture where two companies are going in together to try to accomplish a sole purpose. And the really the, the, the gist of what this, this agreement is for is to prevent someone from saying, okay, let's work together on this, 
they get the information from you, and then they all of a sudden say, well, now that I have that information, I no longer really need you. I can just do this without you. I don't need to cut you into the deal. So you get circumvented, essentially. Right. And, you, you know, there's a lot of situations where this can occur, but um, usually, it, you know, this is, this is a lot to do in the consulting world. Um, you, get a, you get a consultant that comes in and says, I can provide you this service, and because of this service, I can help you save this money by doing X, Y, and Z. Well, if if you're talking to someone and then all of a sudden they're like, well, I, yeah, that's great. I hadn't thought about that, but boy, now that you've told me that, I, I think I can figure this out. You know, y- if you're that person that's giving up those ideas, oftentimes you want to make sure that someone's not going to take those ideas, cut you out of the deal, and profit from them. Right. And on and on the other side, you want to make sure when you're contracting out with a consultant that they're under confidentiality provisions, so that they don't go to your competitor and then try to undercut you by selling some something that they've adapted from your information that will then benefit your competitors. And, and a lot of times you have to you have to keep in mind also, um, you know, going back to the uh, assignment of the inventions and the IP. You know, I have an, an example that I can kind of talk to you about is uh, I have a friend that was in the IT world, had his own IT business, had started developing a product, and had gotten the product along a good good bit of the way, but then some private equity folks approached. And he, he was looking to bring in the private equity, obviously, to grow that business significantly. Um, and, and this is in a story I found out after the fact. I wasn't involved in, in the process. But the private equity came in, and they entered into an agreement, and he continued to develop the product, and the product went to market. And then the private equity folks wanted to cash out and sell the company. Well, when they sold the company... He thought he was going to make millions of dollars for having developed this product, but when he was entered into the agreement with the with the private equity folks, he had assigned to them all of the rights and uh, ownership of the of the product he was designing. He was essentially converting himself from a co-founder or a founder in this business into an employee of the private equity folks, and he got very very little in return. And instead. Became very frustrated when he realized that the private equity folks made millions and millions of dollars on his idea, and he got cut out of the deal. So, you you know, it's not just the employer that needs to look out for this. It's the it's the venturer that's bringing in private equity. It's the employee that's looking to do something for someone. You know, and and a lot of these can be negotiated to make it fair for everyone, as long as everyone's paying attention. When when folks aren't paying attention, obviously, you know, someone can. That's when things get slipped into the agreement that you know. Maybe even people aren't trying to take advantage, but they figure, hey, it's the other it's the other guy's uh, job to, to read the agreement and know what they're signing up for. Right, and, and and representing one party versus another, if you're if you're helping them prepare that agreement, obviously what you're trying to do is get the best deal for your client that you can. What's the client's goal here? Well, in that particular situation, the private equity client's goal was to make as much money as they could when this company sold. Well, and, and, and another thing that I want to mention that kind of here, but it relates to what we were talking about earlier is the difference between the context in which these issues arise, employment uh, versus buying and selling a business. And, sure. and a lot of times, like you said, this guy went from being an owner to being an employee and looking back to see, well, what could he have done differently? Well, there's there's different consideration between the restrictive covenant you enter into when you sell a business versus the agreement that you enter into when you're just an employee. And a lot of times when you sell a business, you do wind up being an employee of the new owner because they, the, the new owner wants continuity. They bought the business because you were doing something good, and they want you to, to, to stay on there. Well, uh, there's generally more deference given to the agreements that you enter into 
when you sell a business than when you just sign up as an employee. And one of the things that I have to kind of walk through a lot of my clients is, look, you've, you've got two separate sources of consideration you're looking at, two different sets of restrictive covenants, and they may not necessarily go together, but the restrictive covenants that you're entering into with in connection with a sale of the business can typically be of longer duration and uh, of greater restrictions than what you would enter into as an employee. And once you sign the dotted line that you've you've signed the stock purchase agreement, the membership interest uh, agreement, or the the asset purchase agreement, uh, and however you sell your business, uh, you're you're really going to be bound by those restrictive covenants. And you you know there's very little ways to to get out of those and argue against them because the courts are going to say you got a lot of benefit from selling your business. It was a third you know you you entered into a a, a fair market bargain with the other side. And, uh, you know, you get the benefit and the burden of the bargain that you struck, whereas uh, what you just enter into as an employee, even if it's in connection with the sale of the business, you've got to look at that separately than from what you directly enter into with the sale of the business. They go on two separate tracks, two different sources of consideration, and given different sets of of deference by the courts. And And not only do you get two different sets of consideration, you have two different sets of interests that the 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 new owner of the company is trying to protect. Right. Uh, obviously, if you're buying the company off of someone, they were able to develop that company into something that was interesting enough that you decided you wanted to purchase it. Right. And you want to make sure that if you're buying that business, they're not going to tomorrow walk across the street, start up a competing business, and ramp it up as quickly as possible right. to become a competitor, therefore diminishing the value of your return on your investment. Right. One other thing, too, I want to just say is that you know we're dealing with this new new law. It's not that new anymore, but... Uh, you know, it, it doesn't seem to have impeded uh, the growth of the tech industry here in Georgia. And, and it's interesting because California, for example, which is really considered usually the epicenter of, of the tech world in Silicon Valley, uh, the, really California is very strong on the right to work. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have come with that mindset that, 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 you know, what restrictive covenants, what are they, what do they mean? Uh, this isn't something that's really standard in the tech industry. Here in Georgia, though, the law is a bit different, but we um, it doesn't seem to have really affected anything, at least so far. Well, uh, thanks, Rhett. And we're just about out of time, so I'd like to thank everyone for joining us for this episode of Planning Successfully. You can learn more about DMQ and its attorneys at dmqlaw.com. You can follow DMQ on Twitter at dmqlaw. You can follow me on Twitter at Matthew Theory. You can reach us by telephone at 404-261-3900. Thanks again for joining us, and please join us again next time for another episode of Planning Successfully. Thank you again for joining us and our guests on Planning Successfully. Use the social media links here to share today's show, and stay tuned for the next episode of Planning Successfully, brought to you by the law firm of Davis, Matthews, and Quigley. Planning Successfully is for general informational purposes only, and no information discussed during the show is to be considered either legal advice or legal opinion. To connect with the show sponsor, visit dmqlaw.com. And to listen to previous broadcasts, visit planningsuccessfully.com.